0: So, I just received some really terrible news. Feels sort of like, you know, in Star Wars, when they go and kill the planet and kill everyone on the planet and explode it. And uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you know, says he, he feels a terrible disturbance in the force. Uh, the Supreme Court of the state of Mississippi. Uh, has basically overturned their medical marijuana initiative that passed at the polls last time uh, by, I believe, greater than 60% margin, excuse me, on the grounds that their initiative process is outdated and unusable. And here's what they mean by that and what's behind that. And we'll probably Uh, I'll probably write something for next week and we'll discuss this a little bit more, but it's it's at the top of my head. And I think it's an important thing for us to to realize Um, (laughs) I want to share my pain. Uh, The constitutional amendment that established Mississippi's initiative process requires that you get no more than 20 percent of your signatures which amounted a little over hundred thousand signatures is a very tough drive. Uh, you can only get 20% from any one congressional district. Now this was difficult, but it made some sense when they had five congressional districts, because you could put 20 and 20 and 20 and 20 and 20, and 20 together and get hundred percent of the signatures you needed. But in 2010, Mississippi, uh, I believe it was 2010, uh, Mississippi lost a congressional seat. So now they only have four congressional seats and they have a constitution that has a provision that says you can't get more than one fifth from any one congressional district. What happened is when people realized that the secretary of state who for whatever reason, (laughs) secretaries of state seem to usually, in my experience, be very easy to work with. They tend to come up with sensible solutions for problems. They tend to want things to work, I think, because it makes them look good. And maybe just because they're good people. I mean, it, it is possible for good people to be elected to office. Rare, shocking, I know, but possible. And some of the best have been secretaries of state. Now, I, I could name some ones that I think were partisan and uh, and terrible and, and horrible, but most of them are pretty good. And um, so they looked at it, and I think the attorney general took the same position, that obviously there's a common sense way to look at this. And it would be that now that we only have four districts, you can't get more than 25%. From each one, and therefore, then it would add up to a hundred percent, and you could still get on the ballot. That's what the uh, medical marijuana people did. It passed at the polls. Uh, to me, you know, there, and I think there is a provision in uh, 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 in some of the states where once it has passed at the polls, how it got on the ballot in the first place becomes inconsequential because the voters have considered it and they have chosen to make it part of their constitution and they have that right. Uh, And so that's the sensible thing. Well, that's not the way it went. And I'll tell you what, and I know there are people out there who eh, are kind of like me sticklers about the constitution. And we welcome that somebody somewhere, some judge would actually go, no, here's what it says. I mean, I, I applaud Uh, Gorsuch's uh, ruling about Oklahoma and the fact that most of Oklahoma still belongs to uh, Native American tribes because Congress never took action to change that status as they should have. Most judges would have just said, "Eh, what can you do? I'm going to make the best of the situation. Gorsuch said in this one case that involved a, a criminal conviction you can't convict them because you have no jurisdiction there because Congress hasn't done its job. And of course, Congress still hasn't done its job. I don't want to run down that whole rabbit hole of Indian policy and, and Congress being you know fairly worthless in, in almost every aspect, which I'm sure nobody has any need for explanation. Um, but we, we do like judges who look at the law and are sticklers about this being the law. Now here, I think, I think the solution is fairly easy. I don't have a problem with them saying, well, it's insane for Otherwise you'd have no initiative process and all this effort that people you know, put into it would be thwarted. That doesn't seem like the right outcome. But okay, the, the judges have ruled that way. And, and even I who am heartbroken by this recognize that they have some defense for their decision. We all know the people of Mississippi want this law. They voted for it. They want this process. Every poll ever taken in any state in the United States has shown people want this process. There's a problem. Lawmakers wrote this process for the people who were demanding it and wrote it in a a stupid, convoluted way, Uh, in just a cumbersome way. I don't want to overstate it, but just a cumbersome way that didn't think ahead well enough. And it's now denying the people this process, this direct democratic check on their government, which it seems to me that anyone who believes in America has to let go of a democratic check. That's what it's all about. That's what we're for. But no, what is the chance that the Mississippi legislature takes action to rectify this situation? I think it's tiny, I think it's really tiny. And what does that say? What does it say that they hadn't already done it? I mean, I knew about this, this is the last census. This is 10 years old. Why, why did they not rush to fix it? It's something easy to fix that needs fixing because they're not our representatives. They don't believe in democracy. They don't believe in the public as their boss. They don't. They don't believe in the core basis and foundation of our republic. They do not. And we have to recognize that they do not. And I will spend some time, I'll I'll get something to whip myself in in the back. I can't wait to apologize profusely if the legislature of Mississippi, who I suspect I'll be helping to lobby at some point soon to do something about this, if they do something. Oh, you will hear you will hear howls of regret on this pat podcast. But let's face reality until pigs fly and recognize that there's a reason why only half the states have this process. It appears that at some point, as we were becoming an industrial giant uh, and we were going through world wars, that state legislatures were protected enough against us, the mob who likes things like democratic checks and direct democracy, initiative, referendum, recall, they somehow got protected because you can see it spread from the Western states, which were maybe less populated. Uh, you see it in some of the states that have it, uh, you know, Maine, very small districts, a lot of, uh, lot of Town hall, democracy, that sort of thing, town meeting. Uh, Massachusetts has it. Uh, on the East Coast, it's uh, or really east of the Mississippi. In all of the built up states at the time that this started happening, which was the turn of the century into the 19 teens, um, the only states that really have it, you've got Ohio and Michigan, and you have Massachusetts and Maine, and then you have Arkansas which got it in the, in the teens, but which was, you know, west and not as, as populated and entrenched, and Florida, which got it very late in the, in the 70s, and, and Mississippi, which is interesting because Mississippi passed initiative and referendum way back in, I believe, the 19-teens, and they immediately <laughs> passed an initiative that the railroads didn't like didn't like it at all. And I don't know the particulars. For all I know, the railroads, you know, were right that it was a terrible measure. But they didn't like it. And immediately was decided that the rules hadn't been written by the legislature, even though they went through the whole process, they turned in signatures, they got on the ballot, but somehow the rules hadn't officially really, really been written. And they weren't written until 1993. Some I believe 80 years later. And that's when a lieutenant governor pushed and pushed and got the legislature to approve rules and create what is the last state to have an initiative and referendum process. I say all this, it's not about any of the scripts. Now this is going to go long. Your your spouse, your friends are going to be mad because you can't go to the lake because you're waiting to hear the rest of this podcast. But I say all this because it's important because We live in a wonderful society with a wonderful level of freedom compared and with a beautiful tradition, even with all the missteps, correcting those missteps is part of a beautiful tradition. And and yet we have at all levels of government people in charge who do not believe the basic tenets that you and I do. And that is a big problem. And let's recognize it and let's not forget it as we look at all the different problems because we're gonna have to solve some of the structural, some of the process problems in terms of getting representation, because as long as, uh, and, and when we get to Friday script, we'll talk about that a little bit. As long as, as politicians can do whatever they damn well please, you know what? They're gonna do whatever they damn well please. So so our first script, having said all that, I'm, I'm a big believer in direct democracy, but this is not just, I know some people who they have some qualms and they want more representative democracy, don't think that, oh, this is no big problem because we have representative democracy, because you do not, because they don't represent you, so it's this is not just a problem with we don't have direct democracy this is a problem in that we don't have a representative system anymore because our representatives don't work for us we got to fix that
1: okay so when you talk about scripts you've completely gone off the rails for a normal listener because they don't know what the hell you're talking about
0: yes that's that is so true so that's, true
1: that's a that's an endonym rather than exonym an exonym would be that's a common sense piece or an essay or a commentary or a column but you say script because of the history of common sense
0: (laughs) well they're actually it's hard to call it a column I have friends who will go well your column but it's it's short it's 250 300 words you know max on good days and uh and and so um it's hard to kind of call it a column I usually call it a commentary and it's, it's like all these syllables. There's all, all letters, double letters, all kinds of things. It's a very complicated term. And script is how we first thought of them because Common Sense started as a radio uh, commentary. And we did two minutes on radio, which works out to about 250, 260, 280 words, depending on whether we're using big words. And, um, and so uh, we always think of it as a as a script um,
1: and nowadays this is the this is the age of uh, the internet and blogs and and that sort of thing and this right here is this week of common sense starring you Paul Jacob writing about the stuff that you've written in the week this is common so there we can run the music blah 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 the music is running right now and uh, here we go I noticed before we came on the air, <laughs>
0: Chet, <laughs> so, uh, uh, we talked about the first three commentaries this week were uh, all ended in question marks. And I believe that's because we have a highly questionable world that we live in. But the first one was make journalism illegal, question mark. I'm supposed to draw the reader in anyway, I think that's easy to answer. And that is no, please don't. And, and this commentary, which of course you can go to, this is commonsense.org and, and read it for yourself, but it's about a journalist, Tom Lemons, uh, who works in Hernando County, Florida. And he has, uh, he worked for a, a outfit down there. And then He's gone independent. He has a book out called Victim Shopping 101. The truth doesn't always set you free. He uh, did a number of investigative pieces on the Dawn Center, which is a shelter for victims of domestic violence. And there are people who have gone on the record with him and said, there is abuse there. There are all kinds of problems. They aren't doing the job they claim to be doing, but that there is abuse, I guess, which is is not just malfeasance, but evil and wrong. And so he immediately finds he's got a bunch of charges that he, you know, has, uh, um, you know, that he has worked, has done things illegally to get material uh, and and it turns out that it looks like those are not going to hold. And I'm saying that because the rest of the story is that now there's a bill in the legislature, uh, Senate Bill 70, that makes it a misdemeanor uh, or a felony if you do it twice, to disclose um, the whereabouts of any domestic violence shelter. Now, this isn't hard to figure out why they wouldn't want anyone to know where these are because the person who's committing the, the, the violence domestically could say, Hey, my spouse is over here or my girlfriend or my boyfriend or, my boyfriend, or whatever. I'm going to go over there and continue to be violent. The problem arises in that you can't shut people up in a free society you can't tell people they can't say certain things like on that street is a domestic shelter, domestic violence shelter. Um, How, by what right can you stop me from saying that if it's true? And, and of course, is that, is it really that we have to hide everything from these people who want to beat up their, their significant other? I'd like to, I'd like to think that we could have maybe a patrol, that looks after these domestic uh, violence shelters and arrest the perpetrator of any sort of uh, breaking and entering or threatening or anything else. In other words, let's actually solve this problem. Let's not take a step back to where the government can tell you what government institutions can be mentioned or not. I mean, that's insane. And it's a great start for the week in our our, uh, looking at different insanities because, again, we're talking about speech and we're talking about efforts to curtail our speech. And if you look at the speech, the efforts don't make common sense. And the speech is essential in stopping bad behavior fiscally, violently, Uh, you know, we have domestic abuse shelters. We have these these shelters to protect people. Um, We don't want to then make it to where somehow the, the media is kept out because then there's no one to protect them from their protectors. And that's what government is. That's why, I mean, look, we all like it, don't like it, to whatever degree we do or don't, but the part we like, all of us, is the protector part. The part we don't like and that people like me think we ought to pay better attention to is the part where they don't protect us anymore because they have certain advantages. They have the power. Why do we have a problem with police? Because police are like the rest of us to a certain degree, and they have enormous power. They have weapons in their hands. They have the ability to arrest us and put us in cages and so on. This is, you know, this gives them a certain amount of power. Politicians have a certain amount of power. The The whole thrust behind term limits is that, we give politicians an office, and then through that office, I mean, why do, why do incumbents raise so much more money than challengers? Because the incumbent has a vote right now on how to spend millions, billions, trillions. I mean, pick your level of office. But that's why they raise more money. It's no big secret. Everyone knows that. And so you are empowering the government and you have to have protections against that power. And that's what we seem to have lost so much of. It's, um, you know, government has the ability to regulate and do all kinds of things in different industries in different walks of life and different ways. And, and people have signed off on a lot of that. Some of it, <laughs> we haven't. They've just grabbed the, the uh, power. Some of it, we have surrendered the authority. But we have to have checks and balances even then. And we might want to call back just a little bit of that authority or a whole bunch of it. But however much they have, we better have checks and balances. And one of those checks is journalism and the media and the fourth estate And by golly, that is not just the Washington Post and the New York Times, which I happen to think are in bed with the power structure and the deep state and whatever other name, the political class, the cabal in Washington, in my mind, is not just politicians. It's other people who have uh, enormous political power and power in our society. And, And that just needs to be checked. And that means that it's not OK for freedom of the press to just be exercised by the big corporate media interests. It needs to be exercised uh, by people like Tom Lemons and uh, and his fight in Florida should be covered in, in the New York Times and The Washington Post and and by all the big media. But I'm not so sure he will get coverage except in the more uh, what do you call it bouquet uh, a, not bouquet, boutique, boutique. I only have so many words. And when I, when I venture out into these sorts of words, boutique, I mean, come on, that's tough. This is something that uh, we're going to see more and more of because of the way media is changing. And there's, you know, there's, there's no give on the First Amendment. People have, a, every one of us has freedom of the press. We don't have to own a printing press to have freedom of the press.
1: Well, um how does that fit in with the rest of the week because this week seemed to be mostly about subsidy.
0: Yes, yes it was. Um, I don't know. I I don't know that it does. We could argue that uh, that in essence uh going after these sorts of uh of uh individual muckraking, you know, press hounds uh, somehow protects the big boys in terms of a regulatory type thing. But I don't think that's, uh, I, I don't know that that's actually what's happening. Um, I think though, that uh, it's hard to go a week, unfortunately, without freedom of speech being implicated in all kinds of different ways, so. But we, we, we jumped Tuesday to, <sighs> it's, it's almost a, it's a funny issue. Unemployed or Misemployed is the title of the commentary but this has been going on for some time and i've had all kinds of discussions arguments with people about um, you know is are people getting too much in in the way of unemployment to where they don't want to go back to work or don't want to go back to work full time and
1: i and by unemployment you mean unemployment insurance benefits
0: Yes, yes, to go on the the program where they're getting, uh, they want to, they might want to stay unemployed because the unemployment benefits are better than the employment benefits. And, uh, and we said unemployed or misemployed, just to jump to the, to cut to the, to the chase and uh, spoiler alert, because in essence, we have, the, the federal government has hired people to stay home. Um, and, and, Look, I don't know what the numbers are exactly. I, I don't have studies. A friend of mine sent me a copy of Paul Krugman's uh, piece at the New York Times. Uh, you know, basically arguing that there's this is a, a ridiculous thing that basically the the Republicans are all evil and they bring this up only because they're evil. It has nothing. Unemployment isn't caused. You know, people staying away from work isn't caused by them making more when they're not working than when they are working.
1: By the way, in his textbook, he has argued precisely that. He has ar- argued that same pers- thing? Yeah, he's argued. He's ar- No, he's not argued his current position. He's argued what economists have always said, that the, the problem with unemployment benefits is that they can be seen as payment to not work. And he said that. that's. I mean, point blank. This has been in many studies. This is not... Out of the blue, this is not a conspiracy by evil Republicans. This is common sense.
0: and you point out, and I haven't followed I you know I don't follow economists the way you do, um, but you have long pointed out that he, in his previous lives, was much more reasonable and and believed a number of things that he does not now believe. But the thing here is it's almost one of those who you're going to believe, your own eyes. Or, you know, what I'm telling you. And, and in those cases, people tend to believe their own eyes. And I know people who are working uh, restaurant jobs, who are working other jobs, that that uh, there was some dislocation during the pandemic, but that they tended to be service-oriented jobs where they were going to still be needed. Um, and... You know, at one point, uh, you've got two people working those jobs and you're both unemployed and you're both getting a six hundred dollar a week kicker from the federal government. That's twelve hundred a week and that's forty eight hundred a month. And that's you know, that that works out to be sixty thousand a year. And of course, that's not that that doesn't include the state unemployment and other unemployment. That was just the kicker. Now, it it's less now. I think some of them have gone to 300. But frankly, right now, a number of states are scrambling to cancel out some of these unemployment kickers because they're afraid of what I knew back when friends of mine told me, I don't want to have to go back to work and lose all this money. And I know that when a number of them went back to work, they had to limit their hours. If they got too many... They, they, they had already, I think, lost the state kicker in the state they were in, but they, if they went, if they worked too many hours, they lost the federal kicker on the unemployment. You know, when it's your money, you pay attention to these things. And, you know, I think a lot of people would rather work than sit home. Um, frankly, I wouldn't mind sitting home, I'd find something to do, but, but you know, whatever your desire is. It's. This is not, this is, and I think sometimes it's it's when you point it out, it's as if you're saying people are lazy. I'm not saying people are lazy. I'm saying people are smart. They're smart enough to know that if I make more money for not hopping in the shower and putting on the clothes that somebody else wants me to wear and, and zooming in my car through traffic or with the pandemic, maybe not so much traffic as usual, and going to work and being somewhere else and if I get less money for doing that from than just doing what I want to do, I mean, is that a tough choice to make? And to hear people explain or, or ask, you know, what, what studies and here's uh, this study says this. I, I don't know. I don't know what study you could have that would that would cause me to say the people I know who aren't going back to work somehow aren't doing it for the reasons they're telling me they're not doing it
1: in the old days before COVID a lot of this is about fear and COVID and it has gotten complicated this time because there's there are whole school systems that are not open and so people who need to take care of their children it gets very complicated the solution to that being probably to reopen the schools but but one of the things that some of my friends did way back when 20 years ago I remember being we were all just a whole bunch of us were uh let go from a big corporation because they, the corporation basically every two years purged a whole bunch of people and redes, redesigned their whole corporation because they'd never made enough money and they were always trying to figure out the right way to make more money and and, and so they would take drastic measures every two years. And so we were all unemployed and and uh, one of the guys there that I worked with I said, well, I just got back from Nepal, well, just several weeks, you know, about a month later. And it says, Nepal, what were you doing in Nepal? I says, well, you know... I was, I was, I was having fun. And he says, how do you afford that? I says, well, you know, I have unemployment insurance. Isn't the state great. That's actually, those are his exact word. Isn't the state great? <laughs> you know, when I was uh,
0: underground many, many moons ago, about 40 years ago, uh, I worked with a guy who came in sparingly You know, oh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to work next Thursday. I'm working all the time because, of course, I got to survive. And then I find out he's on unemployment. And then later found out there was another person working there who was on unemployment. And it's like, you know, somehow that did not make me feel good.
1: Were you all working under the table?
0: I was not. I mean I was sort of under the table but he would write a check. I as I recall, now maybe he did give me cash. I don't know. When I when I left there because uh well I should I guess I should divulge here so that it doesn't seem like it's some what the what the heck are they talking about? When I was a young man, I refused to register for the draft. I think the draft is slavery and uh have no no qualms about defending American freedom, uh, but do not intend to have someone else enslave me into any force to do something that I don't think is defensive. So I was a uh, resistor to the draft. There was no draft, but it was registration. And I decided I wasn't going to sit at home and just have them come arrest me. So I traveled throughout the country and so on. And, uh, and I was in Uh, Lexington, Kentucky at this time, working for a screen printing place. And I don't remember, you know, it's fine to say all that because all the statute of limitations on anybody who might've helped me is run, Uh, but uh, run and then run again and run again. Unfortunately, I'm old, but, uh, but anyway, that was uh, kind of an experience because of course, you know, I was a darn good employee because finding a job you know, was not so easy and I didn't have all the papers and everything else and was concerned about my own security and, and so on. And then to realize that you know, the two people working with me were, were committing actual uh, crimes in my mind in terms of milking the system, not the boss. He was, he was working his butt off, but a couple of the people working there were making, you know, were collecting unemployment while they were working. I suspect they're not the only people uh, who do that. It's interesting, the uh, giving money to the unemployed, you know, the idea of here's this terrible thing that happened. It's pretty sympathetic uh, to to give money uh, to to people who need it. Um, It's best, I think, if we give our own money when this when these situations come up, but people have gotten pretty fond of the government stepping in and doing it with all of our money. And, you know, whatever percentage of that being their money, you know, might, might be. So we get to Wednesday and it's uh, our, our third and last question mark commentary Christmas in California. And it really was interesting to me because this story about uh, governor Newsom who is facing a recall uh, was compared to 2003, roughly 20 years ago, 18 years ago, when Gray Davis, uh, then the Democratic governor of California, right after California kind of became a solidly democratic state that was likely to stay democratic for a while and has. uh, And he got in all kinds of trouble. and, And as I would tell people at the time, I've just never known anyone to be recalled who didn't deserve it. And he deserved it. He made everybody angry. He played all kinds of political games. Um, he was a the consummate. How do I make deals with big political players and run government like my own little crony shop? And he ended up not only making all the Republicans mad, he made almost all the Democrats mad. And that's why he was recalled. But I, I, Got a kick out of the fact that his, uh, his uh, press flack from way back in the days, Greg Davis's, uh, and he was recalled. And, and, and I should just, uh, I'll just digress for a second to mention if you remember in 2003, that recall was treated as if it was the craziest, wildest thing. These people in California, what are they doing? Oh, we shouldn't give people this right. If you chose a governor, you should just lump it. In the whole history of this country, two governors have been recalled. Two. They both deserved it. Both states were better off. It was North Dakota in uh, the 1920s. Uh, Their governor was a communist. Uh, I'm not not kidding. And and he was recalled. I don't know that it was because he was a communist. I think it was because he screwed up some things. Um, But Gray Davis deserved to be recalled. But everyone, uh, some people that certainly I saw kind of is more in my political camp. I remember Mark Sanford, who I always have liked, uh a self-limiter big term limits guy uh this may be too much you know Uh, george will was very anti the recall uh uh and all democrats were because it was the democratic governor and um and it was nice to see him recalled and i think arnold schwarzenegger is not you know my my solution to any problem i can think of he was better than gray davis and uh and not a bad choice considering the choices so here we are now 18 years later and it's Gavin Newsom and Newsom of course is famous for having told everyone to wear masks and not to go out to eat and then went to a very expensive restaurant uh, without a mask but don't worry they sat outside except then when the tape came out it turned out no they didn't that was a further lie Uh, they sat inside Anyway, uh, this guy, and of course, I I don't like his politics either, but uh, he is in some trouble, except he's got an advantage that Gray Davis didn't have. He's got a $100 billion slush fund. Now, about $75 billion of it came from the fact that California, like a lot of states, and, and this COVID money went to these states that are flush in cash. And it tends to be states where a lot of the revenue comes from capital gains. Uh, and, and for whatever reason, California uh, was more able to economically weather staying at home and so on. They probably have more people working on the internet than maybe uh, Wyoming or I don't know. I'm just guessing. But for whatever reason, they have a big surplus. But on top of that, he got 26 billion extra dollars from us federal taxpayers through the COVID relief. Now, why does a state that is 75 billion in surplus need another 26 billion from the feds? I mean, that just seems insane. But uh, it it's the sort of thing that may make a big difference. The this press flag I mentioned uh, said, you know, Gray Davis was never in a position to play Santa Claus. And and, uh, that's what Newsom intends to do. He's got this deal that is giving $600 to two-thirds of the people in the state who make below $75,000 a year. Uh, He has an extra kicker if you have children. And then, interestingly enough, as we were working on this commentary, I came across the article um, in the Sacramento Bee and then found out... uh, from a thing I saw about Heritage Action, we find out very late that the Sacramento Bee report that I end up reading because I wanted to check on something. And it turns out that if you are a undocumented immigrant, if you're here illegally and don't have documentation, that your family qualifies for twice as much The idea being, according to the finance director of the state of California, to make up for the lack of support for undocumented immigrants in the federal subsidies going to individuals. And of course, I ask a question, we just put it in as a footnote, but must they document that they are undocumented? And, and look, I'm, I, this is not a, uh, oh, someone's undocumented, you know, string them up. This is, uh, you know, people do move different places. And and I want people to be able to move as freely as they can. I want people to come here. I don't like a lawless situation. I don't think that long-term that makes a lot of sense. And I don't like this idea of making it to where the only only kind of humane policy we can have is to literally tax people to over, to give extra benefits to people who are here illegally. And so it just seems to me like this is a, I, I would not be surprised if this gets sued in court, but it's almost like, We have we have so much money to give away that we're looking for the state of California wants to give extra money to make up for what the federal government didn't give somebody. Really, we have that much extra money. Isn't all of this money being borrowed? We were running a huge deficit federally, still are. Always have been during my entire life, except when we pretended a few years during the uh, 1990s when there was a tech boom to help us pretend. Uh, But even then, of course, if you if you didn't count, if you counted what was really happening with Social Security, we were in the red every single year in my life. Uh, And I'm I'm getting older. Uh, This slush fund is, and, and you know, in, in San Francisco, of course, David, if you're undocumented, you may be able to vote in local elections. You're not supposed to vote in statewide elections. Um, but this is, that's just kind of a, a kicker that shows just how spending, you know, spending-holic uh, we can become. The real issue here is it's going to help to send checks. These checks are supposed to arrive just around the time that people are starting to think about the recall. And we have done several uh, commentaries at this is sense.org about the fact that increasingly I'm seeing media people, pundits and in stories talking about how all this spending by the Democrats is strategically smart because it will win them votes. We've all, we've long known that people like, getting money I like if you send me a check in the mail I am going to like you however much I liked you before I'm going to like you that much better trust me and so this is this is a huge problem uh, because it's not likely to to stop anytime soon this is the new normal and it's not just Democrats Mr. Trump and the Republicans sent out a whole bunch of checks to people they sent checks to me to stimulate me to spend money or because they thought maybe I needed it. I did not have any dislocation economically. Uh, I mean, lots of social, another dislocation in, in the 2020 pandemic year, but none economically. Why did they send me money? I think they did it because they figured, let's send money to all these people. We have an excuse to do it. They're going to like us. They're going to vote for us. And, and I hate to be cynical, but boy, am I, boy am I sure that, that that's exactly the thinking that was taking place in Washington. Trust me, that is exactly what they're thinking.
1: Well, it's easy for me to trust you because I don't mind being cynical at all.
0: <laughs> well, I, I, have, I have long said, I thought I came to Washington as a very cynical person who had a bad view of what government was capable of. And I've just always thought, I've never been as cynical as I should be. I've just never been able to catch up. More information comes in faster than I can get cynical. Um, Well, we um, we should jump over Thursday's uh, commentary to talk a little bit more about throwing money at the rich Uh, Friday. And it is Friday night as we, as we record this uh, Friday's commentary was throwing money at the rich. And, and this is, uh, you know, I mentioned about the unemployed or misemployed people are, are at least sympathetic to getting money to working people who are thrown out of work because of the pandemic. We can all kind of grasp why there's support for that. But so much of what government has done, even with the COVID relief bill, has been aimed at throwing money around, but not, it seems, to poorer people or to the people who need it. Or, and part of that is not even having any basis for it. And on uh, today's commentary, uh, Friday's commentary, it's really about a, a video. Uh, that that John Stossel did an interview with uh, Lisa Conyers who wrote a book Welfare for the Rich and she spent four years kind of studying state national local programs and just found that it just seems like the wealthier communities get more of the good stuff uh, that they're that, that you know this idea that we're helping the poor it just seems again and again we're helping the rich and they talked about three main Areas One was COVID relief, and she pointed out that it was overwhelmingly that that the relief money that was aimed at communities was going to communities that were wealthier, disproportionately. And also that states like Maryland, California, others that were running big surpluses got buku bucks, um, which just doesn't make much sense. It then encourages them to spend wildly because there's all this extra money. Um, I, isn't there enough need to actually fill uh, before you just start giving money to people who already have it. They then talked about some of the big corporate thing, you know, the, the uh, GM plant that was shut down after they got all this stimulus money and in, in uh, Lordstown plant in, in Ohio. And then afterwards, after closing the plant, even getting the subsidies, they uh, negotiated a deal where they got to keep like 20 million of the subsidy, even though they closed the plant, and didn't provide any of the jobs, um, but they might crater more or something. So we had to you know, rush to give them money. And then they got into stadiums, which is my pet peeve. I'm a big sports fan. Um, and I know how crazy we are. You have this customer base of lunatics who would give you the shirt off their back. They would like, you know, if if it's for the Detroit Tigers or the Arkansas Razorbacks, I, you know, who knows? My family will have to like hold me down not to spend the money. It's this is a license to print money, and yet they're all being subsidized by the taxpayers by people who don't like sports somehow sports fans don't we don't have the wherewithal to make it on our own we've got to get the people who don't like sports and like you know uh, get them in some dark alley and steal their wallet or something what is that so um i thought this was so interesting and my favorite line uh not only was the video i thought very effective and and they pointed out the difference you know that there've been $188 billion in sports stadium subsidies. And that $188 billion has produced about $40 billion in benefits. So the idea that this is helping anybody is, is silly. Uh, if you wanted to help people, you could find a better way to do it. But my favorite line was this guy, this fellow from uh, Minnesota who said that the new stadium's so nice. He can't afford to go inside. And, uh, and, and, that's the other thing that, as a sports fan, I have recognized about these new stadiums and so on. When I was a kid, it was a big deal to take the kids to the game. And it was affordable to take the kids to the game. And I have five brothers and sisters. And so that's, that's a bunch of tickets be several hundred dollars to go to a game today and that's if you're sitting out in the in the bleachers and and so that the cost of the games have gotten much much bigger the fan base it seems to be more of a corporate suite let's have corporate suites let's have the big party where people spend lots of money and the family aspect of the game has been given short shrift now maybe that's the right economic decision to make uh, maybe that's it look you they have to run their business how they think best i i well, I will second guess them anytime I want that's my right but um but they get to do what they want, but not when they're taking our money, not when we're having to pay for it and so uh this is this is a it's been a perennial issue what for twenty thirty years of, and more of them grabbing the, and it used to be they get stopped a lot and then they found different ways. You know, if you can ink a contract fast enough before you're, before the people you work for, find out, you can get away from referendums to block you and stuff like that. Um, But the, the other interesting comment that was left uh, was one that said, we all, we all agree on this basically. And corporate welfare. And I realized he's right. He's right pretty much. I mean, not that there isn't some disagreement somewhere, come on, but, but overwhelmingly on the conservative side, they don't want government giving a bunch of money to build some big thing for some corporate interest. And the, the left sure doesn't want that either. The politicians want that. They're the ones who gain. I'll tell you what, Uh, I live outside of Washington, D.C., and they never seem to have enough money to even give kids school books like they were supposed to have. They're supposed to learn if you can't even get the school book you're supposed to be reading. And when it came time for them to get a sports stadium, they came up with six hundred billion dollars to borrow to, to build the stadium and get the team. Now, they have great access. They have their own corporate box they get to use. I mean, to me, that, that's called bribery, but they found ways to, to do all of these things. And again, we don't seem to have people working for us, but here's another sign that this is something we agree. This isn't a right-left divide. This is politicians want to use government for them. And unless we have the unity and the awakeness to uh, let's get woke in that way. Unless we have that, we can't we can't hold them accountable. And they continue to spend money however they feel like.
1: This is an issue where uh, left and right is an illusion and inside-outside is the real class conflict.
0: You know, uh, when you hear the left and the right talk on cable TV and on NBC, ABC, and so on, they disagree about almost everything, but I remember years ago going to a press conference where Ron Paul was uh, uh, gonna be there and, uh, uh, or a representative turned out to be there and Ralph Nader and some of the other people. It was all the third party people. We wrote something, Uh, I think we wrote a column uh, for town hall, uh, something about the also-rans, we did stuff at, at, at uh, Common Sense as well, but they got together on an agenda. And a lot of it was end corporate welfare and and uh, bring troops home and uh, stop government from getting all of our information from communications companies, telephone and Facebook and so on. And it was amazing How when I read this agenda that they had, that all these people, the socialists had agreed, the the Constitution Party, the libertarians, the Greens, er, all had agreed on this agenda. And look, there was lots of stuff they wouldn't agree on, but it was a serious agenda. And of course, the article in The Washington Post did nothing but make fun of them as as losers and also rands and kooks and. And yet here was an agenda that I think very popular with the public. And here was a real coming together from people who actually believe things that are very much not the same. It it was a level of, uh, and it wasn't compromise. This was kind co- this was common ground. We found common ground and it poo-pooed and, and mocked and, uh, and forgotten. But, uh, but that's, you know, there's, and, and Ralph Nader wrote a whole book, Unstoppable, about how the left and the right could work together, uh, especially through the uh, initiative and referendum process. Uh, just to mention one more thing about Ralph Nader, one, one of my uh, favorite people who I disagree with on most issues. Um, he, he spoke by telephone. He couldn't get out to our event in San Francisco years ago, 2010, our uh Uh, National Conference on Initiative and Referendum, which was part of a global forum, Mm -hmm. and um, and he was on the phone, and he says, I always hear people say that, you know, we have to remember to use initiative and referendum as a last resort. He said, "Don't, don't just think of it as a last resort. I think we have to start using it as a first resort. And what he meant by that was, we know how bad our legislatures are. Our Congress is. Let's not pretend. I mean, I think so much of what we need to do because I don't have all the answers is to recognize that we have this problem, that we have a problem across the board in our government. It's at the local level, it's at the national level where our government doesn't seem to respond to us in the way that you would expect a representative democracy under constitutional rules to behave. For instance, I'll tell you another little tidbit before we move on to the last commentary. I was on the phone with the Secretary of State's office in Arkansas today. Do you know that nowhere online is the Constitution of the state of Arkansas? At least nowhere online on a .gov. I can get it from Ballotpedia and it appears to be correct. They will mail it to me They will mail it to me out of state, but it's nowhere online. And I just figured it would be at the stateofarkansas.gov or the legislature. Most legislatures, most uh, general assembly pages have some link to the constitution. This is the foundational document, nowhere to be found, nowhere. And and maybe this person was somehow mistaken, but I did my own search before I ever bothered someone else uh, with a phone call and doesn't appear to have the constitution anywhere
1: online. Well, that's, that's even odd. I mean, because certainly most other States do my state, I'm pretty sure does. I should go, I should go look at that. I,
0: I encourage everyone to go find, uh, find your state constitution and find it online. And, and of course, uh, I think you'll find it at ballotpedia.org. Uh uh, website that, that we were involved at the very beginning of and which has taken off and just done tremendous things. Uh, but it was a, a project that Citizens in Charge Foundation started years ago. And and they have, I think, every state's. And I know in Arkansas, because in, in Googling, I found older constitutions that had not been updated. And the one I found at Wikipedia appears to be the current one. But I wanted, to, I wanted a .gov to check it just to be more certain. And after not finding it, search after search, I thought, gee whiz, I'll just call them and surely they can point me to where it is. No, it's not online.
1: Well, that's peculiar. Well, you have one more piece. You did it on Thursday. It's called Organizing an Ouster." Did you want to talk about that? I just
0: love that title. I just love the the idea of organizing an ouster because we need to do that in just about every state legislative, U.S. congressional, White House, state house, city council seat, school board. And of course, this is Loudoun County, Virginia. It's very close to me. And it is a a school board that has gotten uh, very into critical race theory. And uh they want to teach that to the kids there, and there is a heck of a movement to stop them from doing that. And um it's you know this uh I I, I know a number of people who I love who are into this and and are concerned about, as I think we all should be, uh racism and minority populations that decade after decade are not not moving up educationally otherwise of course you know the the truth is when you're talking about uh african-americans they have been moving up in in many different ways but there's still statistics that are that are just terrible and obviously you want to go help there but i think that there's kind of this this belief that what would help is to somehow assault other people. Like we've had numerous commentaries in the last couple months. The the situation in Oakland where they're going to give money to poor people, but not if you're white. You know, there's something wrong with that. There's something really wrong with that. And the idea of, I want, and, and, you know, look, I, I, I'm for a lot more choice in education. I want people to get the kind of education for the kids that they want. It doesn't have to be the one that I want, but for my kids, I want them to learn about our history and racism. And I want them to know about the Dred Scott decision. I want them to know about the Chinese Exclusion Act. I want, all of this is very important. I want them to know that John Brown, uh, was not just a lunatic as he's been made out in movies and in, in uh, education when I was a kid, but he was someone who felt strongly about something and, and you know put his life on the line for it. I want them to know all that history, but I never want them to be treated as if they, because of their skin color, which is gonna be the same skin color I have, white, I never want them to think that they are an oppressor because you know what? They're not an oppressor. They're not an oppressor. Their parents weren't oppressors. Their grandparents weren't oppressors. Their great-grandparents weren't oppressors. Their great-great-grandparents, and I could go on and on. But even if I was a serial killing rapist lunatic with a nuclear weapon and blew up half the state of Florida, my kids didn't do that. I mean, this, this to me harkens back to a time on this planet, what, a uh, less than a millennia ago. I'm not sure I said that word right, but, uh, but you know, a, a thousand years ago, I guess you still were kind of held responsible, maybe even 300 years ago, 200. I mean, this is a, a fairly new thing, I guess, generally, that the children are not held responsible for what their parents do, much less what their grandparents or great-grandparents or great 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 grandparents do. And that is, I, I kind of thought we we're all on the same page that that's only right. You can't hold people responsible for what somebody else does, even if they have the same DNA or skin color or what have you. I mean, in the, in the, you know, you would not want to. And, and I don't think you want to treat a black student in American schools as someone who's been oppressed, Now, they may feel that they have been oppressed and I would hear them out, but but don't put on people everything that goes with their race. We aren't just representatives of our race and it's obnoxious to treat us that way. And it is more than obnoxious. It is cruel and vindictive and wrong. It is morally wrong to treat a child that way. That sort of guilt, you know, look, look, I used to joke with a Jewish friend of mine that that I'm Catholic when it comes to guilt. We're number two. We try harder. Um, you know, there's enough guilt out there. We don't need any more. We can we can put that on our kids all by ourselves. Um, no, seriously, that's it's it's just so wrong. And the pushback is always that somehow if you're not for it, you're a racist. You're you're just you're in you're, you just are denying systematic racism, and the truth is that is systematic racism, and whether you recognize certain systematic racist elements or don't, or you think it's a tiny thing or a big thing or a medium thing, or it doesn't change the fact that treating kids in school as representatives of an oppressive race or an oppress, an oppressor race or an oppressed race is just wrong. It's just, so, and and frankly, I think part of the problem is as soon as people start to talk about it and point it up, all of the race baiting is not very effective anymore because no one wants that to happen to their kid. I don't know how many people, I mean, when when people talk about trying to you know be anti-racist they don't tend to lead with what we really want to do is get some white seven-year-old and really make them understand that they're part of an oppressor race it's not true it's not the right thing to do and we're going to stop it in the schools and we're going to stop it as a as a uh organizing principle of society, or frankly, and I, you know, I figure I got maybe another 20 years if I'm lucky, uh, but I'm going to spend some of those years somewhere else because I'm not going to live in a country in which I am put down because of my race or my gender. I don't plan to live in a place where I am regularly discriminated against or berated for things that are completely ridiculous like that. It's not safe and it's not where I wanna be. And this is a big, beautiful world. I can go find someplace else too. So, but that is what we're fighting over. I mean, this th- that is anti- antithetical to everything this country is about. We have been a melting pot. We should continue to be a melting pot. The beauty of America is its openness, is the fact that it doesn't matter who your daddy was, who your mama was, what race you are, how rich you are, uh, what your ethnicity is. You can make it here. You can build your own world here. If you can't make it in somebody else's, you can doggone it, build your own. The moment that instead of that we're some cultural revolution lunacy where, you know, everybody's being judged and treated in society, according to some tribunal's view of what your race and other stats, you know, shape up to be, I want out. And I think think that this is a tiny segment of the population with way more power than this tiny segment deserves. But if I'm wrong, it is, I think, the end of America. I think I'm right. And I think is if people will step up and say, wait a second, let's point out something that is systemic racism, let's fix it. Criminal justice, which the truth be told is a problem for people of every single race in this country. It is a big problem. And it's, it. I wouldn't I wouldn't spend any time arguing about whether it's not a bigger problem for people whose skin is darker, black Americans. Let's fix it for everybody though. Why don't we just do that? And the truth is is another place where the public is there. This isn't there's not some reluctance in the public to fix these criminal justice issues. There is a reluctance in the political class because, of course, they, they just weaponize everything and use it against each other. They're playing a different game and it's not a healthy game. And we have to get into the game because we want to actually solve some things. We want a better society. And uh, that's probably uh, that's probably as much as uh, as I've got. But uh, it, it does seem that these various issues, it's stuff that you just you wouldn't have thought would ever be an issue. Um, You know, I mean, it's just, we live in a different world where where racism in the name of anti-racism is abundant, where we have governments at the state and the federal level just splurging money at us at a time in which at the end of the day, our governments, if you add them all together are running huge deficits borrowing trillions every year. I mean, this is, we've got a mess on our hands and uh, it's somewhat embarrassing to even admit that I've been politically involved because apparently my side isn't winning enough, but we we can win and we better win. And uh, all we can do is keep talking and figuring out how do we get together in
1: ways that are winning. Thank you for joining us for this week of Common Sense starring Paul Jacob. My name is Timothy Verkula. You can find me at, at workman on several social media sites, as well as at workman.com. In both cases, that's workman with an I, not an O. Paul's podcast, along with all of his commentary for the week, can be found at this org. You can find the podcast, of course, on various podcatchers and the video on YouTube and other venues.